This episode of the Can't Do It As podcast is brought to you by McDonald's. Whatever your breakfast needs are, McDonald's got you. For me, I love the breakfast platter. There's just something satisfying about getting un poquito de todo. You feel me? Like, why choose one? It's the perfect solution for breakfast indecision. I mean, let's talk about what comes on the plate. Ya tu sabe, them fluffy scrambled eggs, the warm biscuit, the crispy hash brown, your choice of protein. Some people love the sausage. For me, my favorite, it comes with dessert. The pancakes with the little syrup drizzled on it. Mm. Now question, do you like syrup only on your pancakes or the whole platter? Never mind. That's another conversation. But for now, if you're thinking breakfast, think McDonald's. McDonald's. I'm loving it. Now that you've heard from our sponsor, let's get into a quick snippet of this week's episode. You need accountability. You, you know, there are people who can go to the gym every day and just be by themselves and just like be that disciplined. But I'm the kind of person that needs accountability. I need a buddy. (laughs) So, you know, these indexes provide you with a buddy system where, you know, your stakeholders will hold you accountable if you're not performing where you you be performing and provide you with some ideas perhaps with how you can improve, Um, which is not a bad thing. And I think companies are terrified. They're so afraid of not appearing you know, to be perfect. There are some companies out there who sometimes don't even want their ratings published or who don't want their names published because it's if it's not a perfect score, we don't want to be out there. And like, well, it's not about that. And just participating and being part of this process is, says a lot about you and what you're willing to do. But I think they miss that oftentimes. Mi gente, que lo que, dímelo, 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 what's up? Welcome to another episode of the Quien Duetas podcast brought to you by Plural. You already know on this podcast, our mission is to redefine professionalism. That means every week we have a new guest join us for a vulnerable and intimate conversation where we explore the conflict that they have experienced between professionalism and authenticity. The hope is that with each episode, you all will not feel alone. In fact, you'll see these episodes as opportunities to see representation of people being themselves and thriving at work. Speaking of guests, this week we have Eric Lopez. To get his full bio, please be sure to check out the show notes. These days, Eric is a VP of advisory services at Cokewall. For over 10 years, he's worked with corporations, nonprofit organizations in the Washington DC area in order to ensure fair and equitable access to resources and opportunities for historically underrepresented populations. In the snippet of this week's episode that you just heard, we actually went through some of the work that he's done. The beautiful thing about this work is that it sheds light into a lot of questions that we have. When I was working at Facebook, even at TikTok, I would often get the question of, hey, what is it like to work there? Parentheses, as a black person, as a Latino person. And I think what a lot of people are asking is like, how invested or how good is this company at DEI? And what's really cool is that you don't just have to take the opinion of one person's experience. There are plenty of companies, including Cokeball and another company, which I'll link in the show notes that have that do the research and rank and rate companies on a variety of things when it comes to DEI which we'll get into in the, in the second half of this episode. That said, now that you have a little bit more context into who Eric is and the type of work that he does, let's get into the full conversation. So let's start off where we always start off on the podcast. 
with the word authenticity. It's such a buzzword. What does it mean to you, though? Yeah, no, authenticity. So I think of two things when I think about authenticity. The first is privilege. Just thinking about where you are in the world and who you are. There are so many people around the world that just can't express themselves as they are. If you're a Muslim woman, there are certain limitations. If you're gay in the Muslim world or if you're gay in Asia, if, if you are a certain personality that is not accepted in a society in some other place in the world, then you can't express yourself authentically. So uh, expressing yourself authentically and authenticity is a privilege. And I, and I don't take that lightly. That's fascinating. And it's crazy because it's such a buzzword and everyone has their own definition, but no one has ever mentioned the word privilege when defining or thinking about it. It's like so many of the things that we, we take for granted. I mean, even when you're talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, which is the world that I work in, it means so many different things around the world. And the from depending on the perspective that you're coming from then where you're sitting, it can be viewed very differently. It, it's viewed very differently if you're in Brazil, it's viewed very differently if you're in India, it's viewed very differently if you're in, in, in Europe. You know, for most of the world, this fascination with diversity, equity, inclusion, which is not that fascination, but a necessity and a, a, an evolution of our, of our culture, they see it as a, a uniquely American thing. But I think that that is slowly changing as well. When did you first get that perspective? I'm now working for Colquell. So this, this journey that I've taken professionally myself, and you know they have come up with several reports that look at diversity, equity, inclusion from around the world. The, their studies show that you know depending on where you are, diversity, equity, inclusion is viewed very differently. But before, before I get too deep into that, I do want to mention my second word, which uh, for, for authenticity, which is stra strategic. And I think I've heard several of your other guests say this, and I've, I've been listening to your show, and you know, I, I love your show, I'm, I'm a fan. So I'm, I'm a super fan, so I'm very happy to be here. Um, so I've heard your other guests say this, uh, maybe not directly, but indirectly, and, and sometimes um, explicitly, that they're strategic when they're expressing themselves. And I think that that is very important, um, particularly when you come from a culture that is not widely accepted or misunderstood. So you have to sort of like think about how am I going to express myself in this situation in a way that will continue to further the inclusion of me, not just me, but those that are like me. Um, but not just in those situations, not in my majority, not just in majority white um, audiences or, or situations, but also when you're with, with your own people. Like, you know, I, I mentioned earlier before we started recording, you know, I'm, I'm Buddhist. I'm very into jazz music and classical music, you know, and I got to be careful when I say things like that, especially with, uh, when I'm with my people, because they're like, oh, you know, Eric is weird. But, you know, that's, it. I'm okay with that. But, you know, sometimes it's just really like, oh, I want to be accepted. I want to be with you and I want to be in the crowd. So I'm, I might not talk about my, my love for Wynton Marcellus or something like that. <laughs> so, so strategic is also very important, I think, when I think about authenticity as well. Well, I love the fact that you that you mentioned strategic, but the association with it not only being when you're in this professional setting with people that don't look like us, there's also the being strategic around where we when we're around our own people. And I think that's really interesting. Tell me a little bit about when you were growing up. Did you always have those interests in jazz and in things that wouldn't necessarily be, you know, stereotypical? Yeah, you know, growing up is interesting. So I'm uh, Boricua and Dominicano. So I come from two worlds that in New York, a lot of time, I think this is going away somewhat these days, 
but for a long time they were like oh how how could your parents get along they're like yeah. two different things there's oil and wine and they don't mix they're not supposed <laughs> to mix and i'm like well no not necessarily they're very loving towards each other but um that caused me to sort of be looked at differently by by the different groups so if i'm hanging around dominicans i was too puerto rican if i was around puerto ricans i was too dominican and so i had to be strategic in my interactions with my own friends and with my family growing up um, and in growing up, you know, I grew up in the South Bronx in the 80s. And anybody who was around at the time knows that it was a, a tough time for the Bronx. Although I'm not going to say what I'm going to say in order for people to feel sorry, but for Eddie Quito, but because, you know, I have very fond memories growing up. I have very fond memories uh, growing up in these situations. And it's only now looking back on them do I say, man, that was, that was fucked up. Like, yeah. kids shouldn't grow up like that. But, you know, growing up, I... Um, there were no playgrounds. There was my building and the building across the street that was abandoned and the building that was behind us, which was a pile of bricks. There was just, you could see the entrance tiles, but there was nothing around. Our playground were abandoned mattresses. And uh, this is a public service announcement. Do not play on abandoned mattresses. You shouldn't. As a kid, I didn't know that. <laughs> so we would bounce around on these abandoned mattresses and that's what we did. You know, I would play with GI Joes. I always had a fascination and an interest in science. And when I was watching TV, when I would be watching TV, I'd see usually white men scientists playing with or doing something with test tubes. So I would want to play with, you know, my action figures with test tubes. I, I mean, I didn't want to do the whole gun thing or the car thing. I, I wanted to do test tubes. And we would pick up little action figure test tubes from the streets. Those were crack vials, like empty crack vials that we were playing with. I see that now and I'm like, man, that's that is a really messed up situation to be in um, that, you know, that's, that's what was lying around us as kids. But I have very fond memories of just growing up and playing like that. Um, so there's like a, a whole disconnect there between what, what was happening and what, what I was feeling at the time as well. That is such powerful imagery that, that you're describing. And it's, it's fascinating too that you at a young age are playing with these action figures or toys of scientists and you're recognizing that they don't look like you yet there's some sort of interest in wanting to be them like why did you even want to be a scientist you know that's a good question my one of my earliest memories in school was i was really into dinosaurs as <laughs> most kids are when they are most boys yeah. I think, are when they're growing up um and i had a best friend who was actually white and and going to school in the south bronx i don't know what the whole story was there because i, I had kept in contact with him I remember his name was Jeremy and he was into jets and it was just sort of like we became really close friends because he was into jets and he knew he was passionate about it and I was into dinosaurs and I knew I was passionate about that and um that whole that started a whole exploration and you know you get teachers every once in a while who see that and they're like oh there's this science stuff you should get books about it and I just kept growing my my interest in it but, you know, as the public school system is, you know, I probably wasn't learning the things that would set me up for success eventually. I do remember when I was very young and after having been friends with Jeremy for a while, they sent me and another friend, Eduardo, to take a, a test. After that test, I noticed that Eduardo was no longer in school. He had been sent to a magnet school and I stayed behind. It was sort of like the beginning of me being seen as, oh, not good enough. You know, um, I wasn't good enough to make it into the magnet school. And after that, you know, when I was in high school, 
um, guidance counselors would tell me, oh, don't apply to four-year schools because, you know, they, they usually reject kids like you. Why don't you just apply to the community college? Not that there's anything wrong with community college. I love community colleges. And they're great. But she was telling me, don't, don't shoot too high. You know, don't set yourself up for failure. Do you think it, at the time, did you have the grades that you think would qualify for four-year school? Yeah, no, they're, they're, it wasn't a matter of grades. I mean, I got into a four-year school with, with scholarships. Um, it wasn't that. It was just the, the whole being viewed as someone who wasn't really good enough to um, be in the, in the schools. Um, uh, you weren't good enough to go to the magnet schools or you, know, you weren't good enough to get into Bronx High School of Science. So it was all of these kind of not good enough, not good enough, not good enough that set up sort of like my personality as an underdog. I'm always seeing myself, I always see myself as an underdog going into a situation, no matter what. And I think that that has eventually become my strength because there's no like, oh, you know, I'm not expecting to win, but I'm going to fight for it. Yeah. You know, and, and that has always been a hallmark of, of how I approach situations in life. But at that moment, though, you could have taken that person's advice and said, you know what? Yeah, you're right. Like, let me not even apply to a four-year school. Like, did you have a support system at the time that encouraged you to aim higher? Or did you just have that, that instinct of not rebellion, but like confidence to go after what you want at the time? I, my parents are very loving and, and caring, and they always supported me and, and tried to encourage me to do whatever it is that I wanted to do. Like, they may not have understood it. They may have not understood my, my taste or what you know, a paleontologist was, but they were like, if that's what you want to do, Miho, you, we're going to, we're going to be there for you. We're going to back you up. Jesus. I don't even know what that is yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's the science of, of, of looking at fossils and dinosaurs. So that's. Uh, oh, oh, I, interesting. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. So, um, so <laughs> that's, that's what I wanted to be. So they, they were very encouraging about that. And so they, they were very supportive. And also along the way, I did, you know, while that one guidance counselor was not very supportive of, you know, growth and, and what I was aiming to do, there were others who were very supportive and sort of encouraged me to do things and introduced me to things that I would have never known as well. So I've been very lucky to have this support system that has been around me. I mean, I certainly haven't done it alone. Um, and I certainly wouldn't describe myself as as someone who's so courageous, I, I, I'm often the one who's like, man, um, I don't know if I'm going to do it. That's why I set myself up as, as, a, as the underdog. I was like, man, I don't know if I'm going to do it. I don't know if I can. I'm going to try, but I don't know. You know, it's usually the people who are around me who are like, you know, you got this, man. I got, how could you even say, how could you even like question it? Um, same thing happened when I applied for my Fulbright. Same thing happened when I applied, you know, to, to be at the White House later on. It, it always happens. And I'm always surprised by, by the outcome. That's fascinating. Like you're, you're into so many things at a young age that I would say aren't typical paleontology. And I, I love the fact, I mean, there are some other things, right? But I love the fact, even within all that, your parents are so supportive of you because I think, at, I think many of us have families that, you know, sacrifice a lot to come here. And then in order to get here, they have this certain expectation around like what we should go after to, to be a successful mijo. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Did you, yeah. did you have any of those expectations growing up? I mean, it seems like either way, they were just very supportive though. Yeah. You know, and it's, it, that was part of what was a little bit scary. So, you know, every day my dad would come home when I was a kid and this is part of where my, my love for jazz comes in. He would come home 
And he would put on the Smooth Jazz Station 101.9. That's what it was back in the day. And I would listen to, I mean, it would be very nostalgic for me. It would be like a nice warm home. My mom is cooking the meal. My dad would come home and he would put on the station and things felt like home. But when, when, when he would be taking off his shoes, he'd be all blackened and, and dirty from working in boilers and, and things like that. And he's like, he would, he would show me, he was like, look at my hands. I want you to be able to not have to do this. Like, I want you to be able to do what, whatever you want to do, because I'm doing this because I have to, but I want you to do what you want to and not have to, you know, do, you know, get dirty. Not that there's anything wrong with being a boiler mechanic, but he wanted more for me. Um, and so did my mom. And so that's, that was very, very encouraging. Actually, people around the building, since, as I described earlier, my building was like the only one standing around the block uh, for a while um, that wasn't abandoned people around the building, they were family. Like it was, it wasn't just my apartment. Everyone like mm-hmm. the vecino, Juanita and other, mm-hmm. and Tita and others, they will all look out for you. You, If you were out in the street, it didn't matter if your parents weren't there, somebody was keeping an eye on you. It was that kind of neighborhood. It was that kind of like family. And after a while, the the neighbors, they would start calling me licenciado. licenciado. So there was this whole, ex- licenciado. There was, there was this whole <laughs> expectation I don't know where it came from. I can't, I can't tell you where it came from, but there was this expectation that I would do something, right? That um, I would go somewhere and I would be something. And, and that really encouraged me, but it also put a lot of pressure on me because I was like, it's not just for me. I'm doing it for, you know, for, for, my, for my family, for everyone who came behind me, for everyone who supported me and, and helped me grow up. Um, and I still feel like that a lot to these days, you know, when I'm, when I'm here, even talking about this, I'm, I feel like I'm not talking just on behalf of myself. I'm talking on behalf of my community as well. Yeah, that's, uh, again, like that, that image of your father speaking to you reminds me of, I, I forget how the quote goes, but it's like, I worked with my hands so that you can work with your mind, something like that. Mm-hmm. So like, you don't have, yeah. so that you don't have to make money with your hands and, and getting quote unquote dirty. But yeah, that like that puts a lot of pressure on you to grow up uh, and become an adult very quickly. I'm wondering how did that impact you as you move forward in your academics and your career? Yeah. Did it impact a certain certain route that you wanted to go into or field that you wanted to, to work in? 100%, that kind of pressure. So, I mean, it's not, it wasn't bad. It was very encouraging, but mm-hmm that kind of pressure also made me feel like I had to succeed and not just any kind of success. You know, I grew up not only being called licenciado, but hearing stories about Pedro Albizu Campos. So I don't know who you know who he is. Um, he's a Puerto Rican liberation fighter who lives in like the 50s and 60s. And um, he was ultimately um, killed by the CIA. He was uh, one of the first Puerto Ricans to uh, graduate from Harvard, Harvard Law. They, they, questioned his ability to do so so much that Harvard Law was like, well, we don't really think that a Puerto Rican could pass the, the bar exam this quickly or, or his exams. So they made him take it again and he got, you know, he got 100% again. And that's the only way that they let him have his degree. So, you know, I would hear stories about him. And so as I'm going through college, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm getting ready to be a lawyer, the licenciado. So I majored in philosophy, history, and psychology, minored in business law, you know, did all this stuff. And I always choked up at the, at the LSAT. So the, the, the exam that you take before you getting yeah. into law school. Yeah. 
I choked up. I never really took the LSAT because it was, there was so much pressure for me to perform at a level which would allow me to go to the Harvards, to the other things that I was just like, I, if I'm not going to get this good of a score, I just, I just can't do it. And I never did. That's, that was the effect of that. Wow. Um, I don't, I don't really regret the, the route that I took, but that's, that's what it led to ultimately. How did that feel at the time to, to just go through all of those emotions of hearing the stories, getting that nickname at a year, early age, almost like in many ways, kind of like you're, you're like a neighborhood prophet walking <laughs> around, you know what I mean? And then, you know, you go through all your academia and there you are sort of dealing with all these emotions of the LSAT. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's intense because it's sort of like you feel the weight. And you're like, man, if I get this question wrong and you, that becomes um, the blinding factor. It's not that the question is hard or anything. It's just like, yeah. you're, you're going in a circle in your head. You're like, I see this question, it's hard. And therefore, if I, if I see this hard, I'm gonna fail at it or I'm gonna get it wrong. And then it becomes harder and you get stuck. Um, and so that was a very intense um, time in my life. And I struggled with that for a long time. You know, I studied for the LSAT more, I, longer than, I suspect anyone has ever studied for the LSAT. I studied for the LSAT for like a decade and I never took it, never took it. Um, I can tell you that I'm very good at games. I can tell you that, you know, I'm okay in the logic sections, but I've never actually sat down to take the LSAT because I've always backed away from it. Um, now, I don't regret the, the path that I've ultimately taken because I think, I feel like I've taken a path that still helps me feel fulfilled um, it still helps me help the community in, in a certain way. Um, but yeah, that's the path never, path never taken. If I were to become a millionaire tomorrow, I'd probably, I'd probably go to law school just, just to get it over with. <laughs> <laughs> just to get it over with. Just, yeah, just be like, okay, I did it. All right, it's done. <laughs> well, tell me about that path that you ended up taking into some of the work that you do these days. Um, I'd love to just hear a little bit about that journey. Well, I graduated from, from uh, Hofstra, which is the university I went to in Long Island. Um, I graduated from Hofstra and I went to work for a, a law firm called the Neighborhood Defender Service. And I, I took it as sort of like practice, you know, to see how lawyers work, see how the legal field is. And it was also legal practice with the community. So it was somewhere, a space I wanted to be in. It helped me help other people, things like that. I was an advocate there, which allowed me to take on cases that you didn't have to be a lawyer to take on. So if someone was evicted from NYCHA, I could take on their case. If someone uh, was denied public benefits, I could take on their case. If someone was um, wanted visitation rights, I could do things with that. And I had a 99% success rate. So I take on many cases. I, I, I lost only two. Um, and I still remember them. Um, <laughs> oh, still haunt you. Yeah, they still haunt me a little bit. But I <laughs> and, and for those for those of the listeners that don't know what NYCHA is, it's, it's New York City, uh, essentially like public housing. So yes. it's the projects. I grew up That's in the right. projects as well. So when I heard NYCHA, I still got the key from my mom's building. <laughs> 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 yeah, a lot of memories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I um, and it, it's it's tough, you know, because people get people would get evicted for you know holding an open container of beer, or something along those lines, and then you'd have to prove that you deserve to be there. So you're already marginalized by society, and then you have to prove that you deserve this 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 right, which is housing. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, um, so 
what happened after that, after those three years, I was like, okay, I felt like I was a cog in the system. I felt like, okay, I was helping people and their lives were, you know, changed in some way, or they, they were able to keep some, some source of no normalcy, but then the next person will come with the same kind of problems. I was like, I, I didn't feel like I was solving any problems. I was like, I'm just a band-aid. And I was like, is being a lawyer going to help me resolve that? Or should I do something else? Like get my PhD. I didn't really know. And I thought applying for a Fulbright would help me decide. What, so I, what is the Fulbright? So uh, the William J. Fulbright fellowship or grant that they give to folks um, is through the State Department and they give to folks to study a year or to teach English a year in another country. It's very selective. And so not a lot of people get it, but a lot of people who become like famous politicians, like um, many presidents and uh, secretaries of, of, of state have been Fulbrighters. Um, and so it's, it's something I see as very prestigious. So I applied to that. And there was another, again, this is one of those situations where I'm like, well, I'm, I'm not gonna get it probably, but people were around me were like, no, you, you have to do this and you're gonna get it. And I did eventually. And I went to Hungary to study the segregation of Roma from, their, from, from the public education system there. So think about it like this. In Hungary at the time, it was sort of like the United States in, uh, in the 50s, so before 56, before Brown v. Board of Ed. And there was legal segregation of the Roma. They would separate them into separate schools. I wouldn't even call them schools. It was like trailers where they wouldn't really teach them, prepare them for um, success in life and things like that. And just for context, Roma are what people commonly call as gypsies in, in Europe. Got it. Okay. And so um, I was there to, to look at that. Um, and I came across a community of Roma Buddhists that were doing this thing in the countryside um, to help integrate their communities. Um, actually, in that community, they had a case that was brought up to the Hungarian Supreme Court. And one of the lawyers that was there to advise them from the US was a lawyer that was on Brown v. Board of Ed. So he has since passed, but he went there to tell them how they did Brown v. Board of Ed here so that they could replicate that there. Um, and that case was successful. So um, segregation was outlawed. But since then, the country has gone through several issues with the Roma and not just the Roma, but um, migrants and, and politics and right-wing politics. I came but back it, to the United... Go ahead. I was going to say, but in that outlawing, is that the first time where you didn't feel like a cog? You actually felt let's say powerful? Well, what I was you're doing? Right. Well, I was there. I wasn't actually doing the work. I was an observer. So I was doing a study on like, what what was happening? So the, the Fulbright um, fellowship is more of an exchange program where you're going to the country to bring in some U.S. knowledge and culture. And then you also bring in back something from that country. Um, it was established in order to create uh, peaceful exchanges between countries particularly the former Soviet Union, so that the US and those countries can form stronger bonds. Um, but then it's, it's all over the world. I mean, there are Fulbrights in almost every country around the world. There are a few exceptions. But, um, but yeah, so I came, I came back to, to the US and I was like, okay, I gathered all this knowledge and I had all these experiences. So what now? What am I gonna do now with all this? Um, so I decided to get my master's in applied social science. So it's a sociology master's. And I uh, got that at the end of that um, time in getting my master's degree, 
I um, had to do a practical assignment or a practical kind of applic applicable um, uh, maybe internship or fellowship um, for everything that I have learned. And I went to the White House. So I was at the Office of Management and Budget at the White House um, for a little longer than a semester um, during the Obama administration. And then that's where I decided, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay in DC. So that was my that was the trajectory, and that's where I am now. I mean, I'm still in DC, um, and I'm still doing sociological research work, um, but particularly in in the diversity and inclusion space. Fascinating. It must have felt powerful just seeing things go from theory into practice into like changing things at the system level that you were striving for for so long, right? Did that give you hope when you started working in DC? Yeah, you know, it actually did. Because when I went to Hungary and I saw this, first, the way I wound up in this community was because I didn't see anything in terms of outcomes for the project I was originally there to see. I mean, I left that part out because I didn't want to take up too much time with it. But I was originally there to look at the decade of Roma inclusion, which was 10 Eastern European countries coming together to look at how can we be more inclusive to the Roma. And this is mainly a move for them to look better to the EU because they were kind of vying for EU membership. And they want to be like, well, you know, we, we're, getting, we're better. We are, we're not discriminating against the Roma. Just look at all we did. And so when I went there to look at the outcomes for that program, I didn't find anything. There was no work. No one was doing anything. And so I think there was a lot of blustering, a lot of uh, rhetoric around um, what we could do, what we want to do, but not, not a lot of work being done. And so when I went to the community, I saw what they were doing. So I was stepping away from the government and seeing what the communities were doing for themselves. And that was much more impactful. And so I could see communities can do a lot to make changes within with their situations and, and with, with things that are keeping them marginalized. Um, actually, one of the most impactful things while I was there was sitting in the classroom and just observing how students were learning. I was kind of a distraction while I was there because a lot of the students, when they heard well, I was from New York, they want to talk. <laughs> and they, wa they wanted to ask me, they were like, oh, you're from the Bronx. Um, is it like that Jackie Chan movie? And I was like, not really. <laughs> what movie? Rumble in the Bronx. Oh yeah, they they were like, oh, is it like that Jackie Chan movie? I was like, no, it's not, not really like that. But um, but they really were curious, and they were like, oh, do you rap? They were asking me <laughs> questions, and then I was like, no. <laughs> but I was I was there watching, and I was like, bro, you you're just like what I was like when I was a kid, and that kind of like formed a bond. And, and I was like, how can people? just treat other people like this, like, you know, not giving the resources. And I was thinking about myself, like the government and people within this country were actively working to keep these guys down. They were actively working to be like, these guys are not worth the resources. They don't want to learn. And then I'm sitting here hearing all of their curiosity, hearing about all their dreams and wanting to, you know, get themselves out of this situation. And I'm like, will they ever be able to? I mean, so that just strengthen my resolve to want to make more change in the world. And so when I came back and I worked in government, I was like, no, we need to make change. Yeah. I think, I think there's so many dynamics even within all of the, all of the people that you were around too, right? Cause you were surrounded people that surrounded by people, some of them, which were um, oppressed, being held down, not having that many 
uh, that, that much privilege to certain things, but then you're also around like very smart, tenured, intelligent people as well. Like on some level, was that intimidating? Like you pretty like earlier in your career being around some of these very intelligent ten tenured people? Yeah, I, I th at first it was, it was very awkward. So I would <laughs> address everyone by Mr. Even, in, even when I got to, to college, I would, I would address everyone by Dr. So-and-so, Dr. So-and-so. And it took one professor to say, well, you could just address me by my first name. It's okay. And I was like, oh man, you know, like, I'm not supposed to do that. I don't know what to do. <laughs> it was very intimidating because, you know, not, not because they, I thought that they were smarter. I never necessarily thought that. I, I thought that there was a lot I could learn from them. There was a lot that I didn't know and I wanted to learn from them. I didn't want them to see me as someone who wasn't worthy of learning from them. That was my fear. I was like, please don't, don't stop teaching me because <laughs> I want to learn. That was my fear. My fear was that I'd, I'd be viewed as a stereotype that I know some people see when they hear, you know, brown kid from the South Bronx. Yeah, that's fascinating. Was that ever something that people told you? Or do you think that was something that because often I think we tell ourselves those stories as well, right? Not that they're not true, but, or do you think, you know, you've heard a few times that like about those stereotypes from, you know, people from the South Bronx? You know, they're, they're actually, and I'm, I'm very lucky in, in this instance. And, and again, I see my privilege in saying, just saying this, but I, there are actually very few circumstances where I have experienced overt racism or prejudice against myself. So a lot of that, like you said, it was, it was me talking right in my own head and telling myself, oh, if you do this, they're going to see you this way. Or if you don't do this, they're going to see you this way. Um, so it was sort of like me trying to portray something that I thought they wanted to see. I think over time, I've let that go a lot. I'm, I'm much more comfortable with myself now. But growing up, being in college, and a lot of time after that, I was very afraid of that. Yeah, no, 100%. And, it, and it's very important to, to mention, because I remember when I first started going to therapy, I would say certain things like that to my therapist. I was like, you know, this is what's going to happen. And she asked me, well, like, how do you know? And I was like, what do you mean? I was like, because I know, like, this stuff happens. <laughs> she was like, well, have you ever said it before? Like, and then she essentially educated me on the idea that a lot of the stories that we tell ourselves are typically like worst case scenarios, but most often than not, they're like stories that we frankly just make up, right? Like we need to go out there and actually seek data in order to confirm or prove that that story isn't true, right? So I, I do the same thing. Um, so I just wanna empathize with you there. Um, but it's interesting too, like even, even when talking about the Bronx, like on one side, there are like the children that you're interacting with and the students that not necessarily saying it like in a demeaning way or like a bad way, they're just saying, they're comparing it to, to a Hollywood movie, right? Which is strange. And it's like very different to um, like the story that you have in your head about the Bronx. But I'm wondering too, like, even as you move throughout your career, I'm sure the questions come up, like, where are you from? Where did you grow up? What, do you, what did your parents do? Like, did you shy away from some of those conversations early on? Yeah, I would say so. You know, I mean, I would often say New York. And, you know, when I was in Hungary specifically um, during a different presidential administration, I would often, I, I might even say, so this is, again, the strategic part of the conversation. In, in Europe, I would say I'm Dominican. Interesting. So that, you know, because people were very upset with the then uh, George W. Bush administration. Um, and the Iraq war, and there was a lot of upset about that. And so in order to be like, you know, in order to not elicit any bias or prejudice against me as a person who's there to not 
engage in those kind of conversations or just be treat, treated respectfully, I would say I'm Jamaican. But, you know, I, I, as time goes, goes by, you know, I, I don't think that, that I would shy away from saying where I'm from, even if it elicits uh, difficult conversations with people. And there's still prejudices about the Bronx and what the Bronx is and who comes from the Bronx, you know. But I think it's important to have this conversation. I know now that it's important to have those conversations because like the kids then asking me if it's like the Jackie Chan movie, they're only saying that because that's all they know. Yeah. So in order for that to be broken, I have to talk to them and tell them what it's actually like. Otherwise, they're, they're never really going to know. They're, they might not, they may never have the opportunity to go to the Bronx. They might never have an opportunity to meet someone like me who's from the Bronx. So I would have to tell them what the Bronx is like if, if they were able to know. The only way to reshape that perception is to provide the representation that's missing, right? Like, right. And right. by you by you saying certain things, like, yeah, like you are now the face in someone's mind around what a certain thing represents. I'm curious, like, what were certain things that people did say to you that made you maybe not want to share certain things about where you were from? Before Eric answers that question, let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor. COVID-19 moves fast, and now you can too. If you feel symptoms, even if they're mild, you should test fast test positive and at high risk for severe COVID-19, then act fast with authorized oral treatments that can be taken at home and must be taken within five days from when symptoms begin. COVID-19 moves fast, and now you can too by asking your healthcare provider if an oral treatment is right for you. Learn about a treatment option at treatcv19.com. This message is sponsored by Pfizer. Well, you know, there was a whole, that whole episode um, in high school with the guidance counselor had an impression on me or, or had an impact on me. So I would oftentimes think, well, you know, if, if I tell someone where I'm from, they're going to think that I, I don't know what I, what I should know, or they're going to think that, you know, I can't do certain things. And so I might just say I'm from New York if I'm not in New York already. Um, or something along those lines. So that's that's kind of what where I was coming from at the time with those kind of uh, questions. Where are you from? Um, unlike a lot of your guests, I don't have a lot of experience working in corporate America. So for my <laughs> job, yeah. I've never really had to in- confront that because I worked I worked for nonprofits. So it was my entire professional career, and in nonprofits, there are a lot of there's a lot of exposure to people of color. There's a lot of exposure to um, different communities and different backgrounds. Um, and I think in, in some respect, it's a lot more diverse than some corporations or some departments. But one of, my, one of my main responsibilities has been looking at and examining how corporations approach this. And I do know that it can have an impact. That question, where are you from? can have an impact on how people perceive you and not just how they perceive you, but what your check looks like at the end of the year. Yeah. So very well, that... That's fat. That's I love that that point that you mentioned. This interesting aspect of like the nonprofits, and that's something that I didn't know that it is very diverse. But not only that, what I was so eager to talk to you about, as well as some of the work that you do, like you get such a sneak peek behind the hood, you know, if you will, around like what's really happening in corporate. So although like your experience hasn't been in corporate, maybe you're like. <laughs> like vicariously living in a corporate through the research that you do, right? Absolutely, yeah. No, I I get to see and know all what all the corporations are doing, what they are and not do, and what they're not doing. 
um, how they, how, what's their approach? What's their perception of certain practices? Um, how do they feel about what a potential outcome might be? You know, there are a lot of different views out there on what is the best approach for this. And, you know, they may be all right or they may be all wrong because there isn't a single approach, which is yeah. one thing that I think corporations really have to understand about diversity, equity, inclusion, which is like, there isn't a formula that, you know, you can't just be like, okay, give me the formula and I'll plug in my co corporate name and we'll get out what we want. No, it's, it doesn't work like that. Yeah. It's more like a doctor's visit. I know. And, and you know, for, for listeners out there, like tell us a little bit about some of the work that you do as far as the research, gathering the data and really uncovering the story behind the numbers. Cause I'd ultimately love to hear a little bit about maybe like, what are some of the, what are some of the most, surprising things that you've learned whether it's in conversations with people at some of these corporations and you sharing a stat and they're like I didn't know our diversity was so low or um you sharing an idea and them not being willing or to implement or, or push back or something like that like just a sneak peek into some of those conversations I'd be fascinated yeah yeah so um I used to be the director of corporate accountability at the Hispanic Association on Corporate Responsibility and um then I was also a managing analyst at Ballast Research, which was looking at um, what policymakers think about corporations. And now I'm the vice president of advisory services for Coquel, which looks at diversity, equity, inclusion, not just for one community, but for all um, underrepresented communities. By and, the way, Coquel, or Coquel, if I'm saying it correctly, is one of the research studies that they put out was literally the birth of this podcast. Really? Um, it was it was a study that they did where they said 76% of Latinos in the workforce suppress parts of their identity. And I was like, it was the first time where I was able to quantify and like actually show someone a study that said I wasn't the only one doing this. Wow. Yes. So Coco's research is amazing. I mean, if anyone out there wants to look at their other stuff, I mean, I I just got hired and I, my, my, my first day will actually be Monday. Hey. <laughs> Just to let you know. But, you know, I've been reading their research and I'm like, wow, this is amazing work. They are really, you know, killing it out there with, with this research. And yeah, so there are a lot of people doing out there doing it. It's not just Coco, it's not just Hacer. There are other organizations doing research like this. And, you know, they're all taking a look at what corporations are doing and what they're not doing. Um, how can they be better? Um, and, and how they could partner, whether it be Coco or Hacer, with them to help them on that journey. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Did you ask a question? And did I, know? <laughs> well, I was like, well, wait, <laughs> I was like, wait a second. Am I supposed to be answering something now? No, well, well what, what were some surprising things that you noticed uh, when looking at some of this data? Wondering, like, if anything stood out to you that you were just like, wow. Yeah, you know, so, you know, one of the best parts of doing the research with Hacer, so Hacer has this corporate inclusion index, which is um, informed by a survey that they do every year. And, you know, about 100 companies participate. And every year, I used to have a conversation with each and every one of the participants, a one-hour conversation about their responses and what their impressions are. And these are and executives, mid-level, senior managers? Usually people in the DEI department, but we always would invite anyone else. So mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, one time we even got the CEO of a company to attend. We, you know, sometimes we would get executives, sometimes we would get the CHRO. So it depends on the company and the level of involvement and how close closely they're working with 
the people filling out the survey. But oftentimes there would be a DEI professional working to fill out the survey. And some of the more surprising things that I would constantly hear that I wish I didn't hear anymore was, where do we find Latino talent? I, I, that is my least favorite question of all time. Because <laughs> it's like, where are you looking? Well, you know, we, we have recruiters at Harvard and Stanford. I'm like, well, you know, while there are plenty of Latinos there, historically, we're not always there. So you have to widen your search to other areas. And I was just surprised to, you know, that this was a, su a surprise to some people. But I think that, you know, it's a self-selected group of organizations. So companies that are taking these surveys voluntarily, they want to do the work most of, most times, right? They want to do the work. They want to improve and they want to find out what, what, what they can do to be better. And so um, while there's some, there's an educational aspect of this, there's, there's still a lot of opportunity, a lot of openness. Every once in a while, you'll get um, someone who is like, well, that's not how we do things. And we're not looking at it that way. And our numbers say something different. And so you're, you're like, well, what is it that you want to talk about that would help improve these numbers? And it just Give me an becomes, example. becomes a dead end. So um, particularly with suppliers. So working with suppliers. So HACER has four pillars in their employment, procurement, philanthropy, and governance. Procurement revolves around the suppliers. Um, and that is one that companies are, I think, scoring the least in, in terms of the metrics that Hacer has, uh, the, the fewest number of points, because it's one that is the newest in terms of DEI efforts, and one that really has a huge impact on how companies do business. And so it's like turning a battleship to use Obama's um, um, analogy. So it takes time to make changes there. Um, but a lot, oftentimes we will get a similar question, which is like, well, where do, where do we find the Latino businesses? And then we would give them some suggestions. And then there would be a, a question of, well, you know, they're not ready to do business with us. So it becomes a dead end. So it's like, oh, we would love to do business with Latino small businesses and suppliers, but they're not ready for us. They're not big enough. They don't have the, 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 the resources. And so it's, it becomes a question of like, well, do you want to do business with Latino um, um, suppliers, they're like, yes. So then you have to sort of build them up. A lot of corporations that have been very successful in this area have been bringing up businesses slowly over time, helping them build up to, to a point where they can do multi-million, multinational contracts. Um, but that's never going to happen if you're just going to look and say, oh, well, you're not ready. Let that be the end of it. That's a whole other side of, of diversity and inclusion that I think people don't even think about, right? I think mostly when people think about DEI, they think about just the hiring of employees for, let's say, traditional roles, right? But an organization has like millions of dollars being spent in so many different areas, right? So where, I mean, they have agencies for like so many different things, for example, that, 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 they, that they outsource, right? Because not everything is done by specific employees. I think most people wouldn't even think about supplier diversity and them hiring and outsourcing talent, that being an opportunity to diversify their spend as well. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, think about it. You know, who, what businesses are gonna be the ones to contribute most to the community? It's gonna be the businesses that are in that community. Mm -hmm. So you really want to contribute. So if you're, if you're thinking about, and if you really want to make 
you know, generational change um, within a community. You have to support the businesses within the community. You have to help them grow, help them become better contributors within their community as well. It can't just be the big corporations always um, giving dollars to, to small communities. Those, those businesses can be more meaningful, more connected contributors within the community, which is why not just procurement, but philanthropy is very important as well. Where are you giving your dollars? How are you contributing? What kind of contributions are you doing? Is it a meaningful exchange? Are you going there just to throw money at the community or are you be partnering with the community, asking them what their needs are and providing those needs? Those are all things that are very, very important that companies are just like, oh, didn't know that. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I think a lot of people don't even know about these indexes, right? I mean, there's often the question, like a lot of the content that I put out there is just my experience in, in these various corporate spaces. But a lot of times I get questions of, well, like, how do I even know what company is good at DEI, right? It almost provides some accountability to certain corporations to just like they want to see their stock perform well, like in certain ways, they want to see their themselves do well on these indexes so that people that look like you and I would want to work at these corporations. And it's like, you know, there are a ton out there, by the way, there's, you yes. know, there has their, Coco has the Black Equity Index now, Diversity Inc. has something, there, there are a lot out there and, and any Google search will, will turn out a ton. Yeah, companies really want to know what, where they are and where, where, and how they can get to where they want to be. I think that has changed, obviously, especially within the last two, two years, um, ever since, you know, 2020 and the events uh, following George Floyd's murder. But companies need to really see this as an annual checkup, just like you would go to the doctor yeah. to check up every year, you know, where you are. It's not necessarily because you want to get, you know, perfect ratings or perfect eyesight. Your doctor eventually is going to tell you something is wrong because we're human and our bodies break down. Yeah. Your systems will break down too. If you use them long enough, they will become outdated. They'll break down and you have to do something to bring them up to date. And that's what these indexes provide. They provide you with a checkpoint for where you are and where you could be. Uh, but it also tells the public, your stakeholders, those who are your customers or your employees, where you are and where you could be too, because you need accountability. You, you know, there are people who can go to the gym every day and just be by themselves and just like be that disciplined. But I'm the kind of person that needs accountability. I need a buddy. <laughs> like, so, you know, these indexes provide you with a buddy system where, you know, your stakeholders will hold you accountable if you're not performing where you, where you could be performing and provide you with some ideas, perhaps, with how you could improve, um, which is not a bad thing. And I think companies are terrified. They're so afraid of not appearing you know, to be perfect. There are some companies out there who sometimes don't even want their ratings published or who don't want their names published because it's if it's not a perfect score, we don't want to be out there. And like, well, it's not about that. And just participating and being part of this process is says a lot about you and what you're willing to do. But I think they miss that oftentimes. Tell me, tell me about some of those conversations and some of the fears that come up. Do they share like well, we're, you know, if we get below a three, then no one's going to want to work here. Like, what are some of those conversations yeah. like? Yeah, no, it's exactly that. It's sort of like, oh, you know, if it's not a perfect score, it's not on brand. And so, <laughs> and so therefore, we don't want it published. But I'm like, what? Well, it's reality. It's sort of like saying, mm -hmm. oh, you know, I'm sorry, Mr. Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, you have diabetes. They're like, well, I don't want to hear that. I like, I like candy too much. So 
I'll come back next time and hopefully things will change. I'm like, no, that's, it doesn't work like that. You have to confront the issue, deal with it, uh, uh, establish a plan to, to deal with it and get tested again and see where you are, how far you have come, where do you have to make adjustments? You know, it's like anything else. It's incremental. It takes time. But I think that some feel like either it is perfect or I could make it perfect within a year, which is very dangerous as well. As well. I've seen companies come in and say, well, what's the problem? We don't have enough Hispanic employees. And then the next year, they'll hire a ton of Hispanic employees and be like, oh, our numbers are, are better now, aren't they? Like, yes. But what, are, what have you done to sustain those numbers? What foundational things have you done to engage those employees to make sure that your company culture is going to help keep those employees? The oftentimes when they do it like that, nothing. And then the next year after that, they're back where they started, which is not helpful at all. Because then the rhetoric becomes, well, we try to hire Hispanic employees and they don't want to work here. Mm-hmm. And I've seen that from certain industries um, <laughs> who will do that sometimes. And it's like, no, you have to do the work. It's not, it's not an overnight thing. You have to do the work. I think they have gotten a lot better yeah. in all industries, but it's taken a while. And a lot of times they, they'll do these approaches and it's like, no, man, you have to do the work. You have to get to know us. <laughs> And that's why I love some of the some of the some of the work that you've been doing in in looking at it's not just about diversity. There's so many other factors that go into an organizational culture's experience for for so many people as well. I it's interesting too because you mentioned the George Floyd murder and I think the a, a bunch of other incidents that happened around a similar time. For me, I think that's when I started seeing certain changes, and it's not like they were major changes, but if George Floyd happened two years before that, they wouldn't even bring it up in a meeting. Mm -hmm. Um, And after that, I literally heard diversity being brought up in every single conversation to the point where I was, I became suspicious almost. I was like, why? This is, this is weird. Like my managers all of a sudden, like asking me how I'm doing and if I feel included and stuff like that. And what happened was that speaking of accountability, I found out that managers started to be graded on how inclusive or included their team felt, right? So going back to accountability, now that it's impacting people's bonuses and their performance reviews, now people started taking action. Like, not that I, not that I don't think a lot of people are still doing performative actions, but I am starting to see a, an association between DNI and actual like payment and bonuses, I don't know if you're seeing like similar trends as well around accountability. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the questions that has been asked on the CI for for over a decade, I mean, it goes back to 2009, is how is your compensation tied to um, your diversity inclusion metrics and goals? It's always been asked, but like you said, for a long time, there has been no traction there. No one wants to be connected to it. Part of the reason for that is that people were still confused. And they were confused only because they weren't doing the work. But they were confused about how, how exactly do we do these metrics? Do we want to st- put a quota for different groups? That doesn't make sense to us. How do we tie that to bonuses? If, if, if there isn't a number, if there isn't a quota, what, what are we looking at? So I think they were very confused about how to integrate things. But I think after George Floyd, and, and you're absolutely right, before George Floyd, there were other instances, Trayvon Martin going on forward, that people would not bring it up during conversation at work um and now things have changed and i think things have changed because there have been more and more 
um, companies moving towards tying compensation to these metrics, to these goals. You know, look, it's a, it's a capitalistic society and money talks. <laughs> we're fooling ourselves if we think that there are other reasons we're going to work that's not a paycheck. As much as you may love your, your job and the people who work around you, if they weren't paying you, you wouldn't go. So if you tie those metrics to that compensation, you're gonna see changes because the work of fighting against the bias that people may have about our group and other groups that are marginalized or excluded, though that work takes a long time that's generational work and that's not going to change in the next year or two years again it, this is this is stuff that takes but in the meantime we should be included we should be in the in in the in the, um, in the boardrooms we should be in the decision making process we should be the ones who are deciding whether what kind of products are going to our communities and and how um, these are all things that are important decisions that we should have a say in i love that and Let's end on a positive note. What's something that you've seen in the data in your work that you're encouraged by for our community? I'm encouraged by the change in the numbers um, because for a long time, companies would either not report the numbers because they were ashamed, I guess, by them. They, they, they thought that they weren't good enough or they felt like they would be exposed somehow, even though there was an NDA behind filling out the survey. Um, or they weren't tracking them. But I think that now companies are really doing the work and tracking these metrics, looking at the communities, trying to figure out how to improve those numbers. Because it's not just about the numbers, but okay, now that we know where we are, how do we get to where we want to be? And there are some companies that are superstars out there that, you know, they're they're already at the top of the game. They're already scoring five stars in the Hacer CII. And those companies are listed. If anyone wants to look, look at last year's report, there are companies out there that are five star and they don't stop. They're like, how could we get better? I don't, yeah, I see we are five stars, but there's there's things that we can improve, tell us. And um, those are the companies that are gonna be ones to watch out for in the future. Mi gente, that wraps up this week's episode of the Quintuetas podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor, leave us a rating and a review. It just helps us in the algorithm to ensure that these stories get heard by as many people as possible. Scaling these stories and experiences is the only way that we're going to redefine professionalism. Thank you and see you next week.